And it, a whole number of uh, interpretations and experiences devolve from that. But what I want to highlight is several features of it that relate to the passage we're talking about today. One is the, the experience was associated with the word spirit and with the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, secondly, it involves some ecstatic behavior or trance behavior. Uh, you know, I was not cognizant of my surroundings, and uh, I don't even know how long it lasted. I guess around a half an hour. I don't know. Uh, it did not involve tongues. Our, the group I was with was, hmm, we were all young Christians. We were all high school students. Uh, we were all young. Some of them had grown up in the church. But tongues was on the, hmm, not the core of what we were about, but it was related to what we were about. And I spoke in tongues later on, but it never, never was a big deal of, never core to our experience. The movement also involves some sorts of preternatural knowledge, you know, words of knowledge or prophecy, things you shouldn't know, but some kind of subjective impressions you had of what God was saying, what God was doing. The One of the interpretations, or within the movement, there's a couple of interpretations, not necessarily conflicting, of the experience. Some people within the movement will say, this experience of the Spirit gives you a greater power for holy living. And I kind of bought into that until sin demonstrated otherwise, and the sin around me demonstrated otherwise, the sin within me demonstrated otherwise. Some people say it's in the experience imparts a greater power for ministry. And I kind of bought into that until I got further in the movement and saw there was not a whole lot of difference between those who had the experience and, and those who didn't have the experience on either level, either the level of holiness or the level of uh, power in ministry. Another feature of the experience, which was especially amusing to me, was that these friends who laid hands on me and prayed for me to receive the Spirit, they were kind of freaked out by what happened. So... I mean, their experience of the Spirit was not nearly so dramatic or vivid or ecstatic as mine was. And then they continued to get freaked out when this recurred occasionally with me. At one point, one of the friends over the, on the periphery of our network wrote me a letter and, on behalf of a bunch of other friends and said, you know, calm this thing down here. You're embarrassing us. In our community, a small Christian community within a larger, larger non-Christian environment, they said, well, come on, you know, calm down a little bit. You're embarrassing us. And my response, I was pretty new as a Christian, three or four, well, four or five weeks by then. And I wrote back and said, well, I, it wouldn't be right for me to be ashamed of what the Holy Spirit is doing in me. And that kind of took the wind out of the sails. They didn't know how to respond to all of that. Now, that is, kind of correlates with what Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. But just before we go there, let's review a couple of where we've been over the last, say, few months. Last year we looked at God's promises from Abraham all the way through fulfilled in Jesus. And we found that in Jesus, oddly enough, you wouldn't realize this from the Old Testament, but you know, in the Old Testament God made a lot of promises and Jesus fulfills those promises, but uh, not, not all of them. And the New Testament says, well, Jesus fulfills some of them now, and he'll fulfill the rest when he comes back. And so now we're caught between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. And the question we've been addressing from the New Testament over the last few months is, what is life like? 
between the first and the second coming. We're in the same circumstances they're in. What should our lives be like? And the New Testament really kind of addresses this. And so we saw from the book of, from the book of Acts, we saw, first of all, that in this intermediate time, really our primary focus, our one call, our one goal, is that everyone should hear that Jesus has come. The book of Acts makes this point, and it's still relevant to us today, that we need to prioritize missions to the unreached. First Thessalonians, as these people became Christians, and particularly, they faced uh, tension with the synagogue because they were Jewish, most of them, the early generation. And then the, later on, most, most of the church was Gentile and had come out of other religions, and they faced tension with the other religions. So how do Christians respond when they're faced with opposition from the culture around them, both uh, whether Jewish culture or Gentile culture? And then Second Thessalonians, they were, got really focused, hyper-focused, on the second coming of Christ and began developing all sorts of theories about when it was going to happen, whether it had already happened and what it was going to be like when it happened. And Paul really in Second Thessalonians calms them down, much like we needed calming down around the year 2000 as the new millennium came in. And then in Galatians, you know, as I mentioned, the church started out as all Jewish. And then all these Gentiles started coming in. And as Pastor David prayed today, you know, they faced a number of racial and ethnic tensions. How are you going to bring Gentiles, since Jews despise Gentiles and Gentiles pretty much despise Jews, how are you going to bring them into the same church? And Galatians dealt with the importance of learning how to live together. Uh, and then 1 Corinthians deals with a number of issues, all pretty much related to the tendency for all of us, young Christian or old, to take values from our culture and import them into the church. Now, some of our cultural values will be perfectly legitimate, but some of them need to be transformed. And the risk is that we don't give enough thought to what those cultural values are. You know, we don't realize we have cultural values unless we're cross-cultural. One of the advantages of being a bicultural church is we see that other people have different ways of doing things, and it raises questions not about them, but it raises questions about us. And so we have to begin to think, well, what is the cultural value here? And then how does Jesus shape this? And so they had a number. They uh, engaged in competitive evaluation of pastors, just like they had engaged in competitive evaluation of philosophers. They uh, had brought all, all sorts of ideas, conflicting ideas about sex into the church. And Paul had to deal with those. And then other religions. You know, they had... It wasn't so much that they were practicing other religions, but they had friends. They had friends who worshipped other gods. How can they socialize with these friends? How can they be Christians and faithful to God without cutting off all their relationships with people who aren't Christians? They dealt with that. And then, in now in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, he deals with this, their experience of the spirit world. They'd had experiences of the spirit world in their original religions. Pretty much every religion around the world exists at two levels. And there's controversy among anthropologists and sociologists about what to call this. It used to be called the great tradition or high religion versus low religion. But you see this in Islam, you see this in, in Catholicism, you see this in virtually every religion where you've got a cognitive or a theoretical or theological trained clergy 
That's one level of the religion. And then you've got people who interact with the spirit world and bring that into their religion. Just one example. My brother-in-law in Malaysia grew up in a community in a neighborhood, predominantly Chinese. Every year, the Chinese would gather together, take up a collection to buy a goat. And then they would get the local Muslim leader, not an imam, not a theologically trained, you know, great tradition imam, but the low tradition Muslim medium, you could say, Bomo. They get him to take them out to an island off the coast nearby. And this Muslim would sacrifice the goat for the Chinese in order to, to appease some spirits that otherwise might harm them. See, that's all spirit world stuff that doesn't really fit in the theoretical world stuff. So formal Islam would never approve that. And now any of you who come from a Catholic background in Asia would be familiar that in Asia, Catholicism, has, well, since Vatican II, in Latin America, Africa, and Asia, Catholicism has kind of made peace with, integrated with local religions and taken over some of the forms of the local religions. And you can see an amalgamation, what you could call uh, low Christianity versus high Christianity. Uh, not the stuff that would be taught by the priest or the Vatican, but a lot of spiritistic practices. And evangelicals do this kind of thing too. Now, now basically, what we see is that the Corinthians, well, basically we see that every religion has some experience of the spirit world. It may not, it's generally, almost exclusively, it's not what you're taught in the classroom if you're studying world religions. Because it's not at the level of great tradition world religion. It's what you learn in the classroom if you're studying anthropology or sociology. But they have an experience of the spirit world. And typically, in every religion, spirit is the word used. It's the word used in Judaism, it's the word used in Christianity, it's the word used in Greek religions. Spirit, it's all associated with the word spirit and with the concept of a spirit world. Typically, it involves ecstatic behavior. Typically, it involves mediums. These are people who are human con contacts, human conduits. A human being stands between the spirit world on the one hand, a special human being, a unique, uh, practically trained human being, stands as a conduit between the spirit world and the human world. So you go to a medium. Uh, mediums are a common practice in most world, well, in most religions around the world. It involves ecstasy, spirit world, it involves trances, it involves tongues, speaking in languages that make no sense to anybody, but have a hidden meaning to them or a deeper meaning to them. So these kind of things, I'm going to show you a few, oh, I, <laughs> Uh, Pastor Jen has a bad voice this morning, so she had to bring the junior high up here, and she asked me, was it okay? You know, like the last few weeks ago, we had a sermon on sex. This, this is a little bit, this is a little bit um, questionable. I mean, if you, you get easily freaked out by this stuff, you might leave after the first slide or so, but you, you feel free to do so, if, as long as you're freaked out, not just because you want to skip church. But anyway, moving on. Uh, so spirit, I want to show you, you know, basically, Hinduism... Uh, there's a ceremony, a, a holiday, a, a celebration called Taipusam, where you have a lot of spiritism, spiritistic practices. 
So you have uh, people will, for example, go into a tra- remember ecstatic behavior trance state. They'll go into a trance state, and the the uh, local leaders, religious leaders, will pierce their cheeks, say, with this uh, skewer, and then. Uh, again, another example of the same. And then they'll go in procession. This fellow's carrying what's called the Kavadi. Uh, it's a large structure. I mean, 50 pounds or heavier. And it's hooked into his, all those lines coming down are actually have hooks at the end. And it's hooked into his flesh. Uh, you know, hundreds of hooks there. And they'll go on procession through this as an act of dedication and uh, worship of God. What I want to point out to it is ecstatic behavior. A trance state of feats of power. A Chinese religion on the ground level, not a formal Buddhism as you'd study in a world religions class, but on the ground level has low religion. So you have the idea of a medium who goes into a trance state. And here's a picture of a medium. Uh, there's also the same kind of skewering goes on. This fellow's got this post that's going through his cheek as a demonstration, it was a, it's trance state before you enter it, to show that the spirit has possessed you or that God is possessing you. It, there's a this miraculous power feat. Uh, there's a trance state involved or else it would hurt excruciating. And then there's typically, you'll go to a medium if you want a spell to deal with demons. They'll, um, maybe a, a medium will cut their, t- when they're in trance state, they'll cut their tongue and use the blood to write on a spell. Then they'll burn the spell, put the ashes in a cup of water. You drink the water and that'll cleanse you from any spirit that's harassing you. So there's, uh, and also the, to demonstrate that the spirit is possessing them, these guys will flagellate themselves so the bleeding and the, they won't feel the pain. So there's power related to the spirit, related to supernatural abilities, uh, supernatural knowledge. All of this stuff is common enough in world religions. Um, it was common enough, we'll skip a bit about the Korean, was, it's common enough also in Greco-Roman religion. The most common example, most famous now, the example that we know, there's not a lot of records of low religion because it's populist. It's not necessarily educated. You don't have to be literate to be a, a, a BOMO, a medium. You don't have to be literate, what we used to call witch doctors, or you know, be a spirit medium. So there's not a lot of records. The most common record from the Greco-Roman culture, though, illustrates the same thing. There was an oracle at Delphi, Maybe you learned about it in school. Where if you wanted to know the future, and it appears in some of the old Greek plays, if you wanted to know the future, or you wanted special insight and guidance for your life, you could go to the oracle at Delphi. There were many oracles around, but this is one place where you could find an oracle or a medium. And you'd go to the site, and you'd make an offering. And typically, in Delphi, the process involved a... Female priestess or medium. It involved the word spirit, the concept of spirit, because the word spirit also means wind. And the Delphic Oracle would climb on a tripod over a crack in the cave, which was supposed to lead to the underworld. And a miasmus or a wind, a spirit, would come up from that crack enter the medium, she would become possessed, and she would, the signs of possession were ecstatic language, she would say stuff that people couldn't understand, it wasn't Greek, 
and she'd throw herself around, you know, uncontrolled behavior. She'd throw herself around the cave, bouncing off the walls, and eventually the Delphic Oracle had to be uh, standardized or, or had to be calmed down just because they were having a hard time supplying it with priestesses who were willing to be battered around by the stones in a cave wall. Uh, it would shorten their lifespan. Now, she would spew out ecstatic language, and then a priest who was there, notice the priestess gets the hard part of the work, the priest gets the easy part. The, the male priest would interpret the Delphic Oracle for everybody else and then give guidance. So notice this is in the Corinthians background. The idea that some people have special connection with the spirit world. The idea that they go into trance states. The idea that they engage in ecstatic behavior. The idea that they speak in languages that nobody else can understand unless they have a special gift. The idea that these are special people. Not everybody can do this. These are special people. And this is in the Greco-Roman background. Now, if you've got all those things, spirit, possession, ecstasy, tongues, interpretation, if you have all those things going on in your pre-Christian background, Special people, they have the media, they're the mediums for the spirit world. They're the conduits of blessing and, and guidance between God and man. If you've got all that stuff going on in your background, and then you become a Christian. And what's the big difference between Old Testament and New Testament? The Old Testament promised the spirit would be given. And the New Testament book of Acts says the spirit was given. And suddenly you, you're Christian and now you've got the spirit you use the same word, the same concept of a spirit. You've got ecstatic behavior. You've got languages that nobody can understand. You've got uh, 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 trance states. You had it all here. And you knew what it meant. It meant that you were a special conduit of the, of the spirit world to the human world. Now you have all those experiences here. What's it going to mean? You're going to take that. Naturally, you're going to take that interpretation framework and impose it here. And what it will mean is you speak in tongues, ecstatic languages, trance states, you prophesy, you interpret. What it will mean is that you are a special conduit between the spirit world and the human world. You were that here, and now you're that here. But there it was for pagans. Oh, sorry, you weren't that here, typically. But now you are that here. You have the spirit. You are a conduit. You do speak in tongues. You engage in trans behaviors and ecstatic languages. Suddenly, in coming a Christian, then your status is elevated. Being a medium in Greco-Roman was a high spiritual status because it was uncommon behavior. People, most people would flock to the Delphi Oracle because they weren't oracles. Now, you have direct contact with the spirit world. What's that mean? It means... You're special. And these things are special. And that's basically what's all behind. Paul develops one argument through 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, all developing one argument to respond to this Corinthian assumption that they are now mediums, just like the, they couldn't be then. They weren't then, but now they are mediums. And Paul's responding to that value that interpretation and the values they associate with that throughout 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Now, you remember if you were here, I don't know, a week or two ago, when we looked at 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, 
the Corinthians were arguing with Paul about stuff. And he can't just tell them, you're wrong. Because they'll just rule them out of court. They don't care about Paul. They, he came back to visit and try and teach and correct some things. They threw him out of the city. They're not going to listen to a letter. They won't listen to the, the apostle. So he's got to approach it slowly. And he has to work piece by piece. So 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, three chapters, all one incident he's dealing with. 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, three chapters, all one incident that he's dealing with. 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, he begins by dealing with their foundational ideas. And then only in 1 Corinthians 8, the foundational ideas, 1 Corinthians 9, a related experience, argument by analogy, and then 1 Corinthians 10, the specifics. Same thing with 12 to 14. He begins with some underlying values. Then he goes into a related analogy to explain, illustrate. And then finally in 14, he deals with the specifics. Now we're going to skim over it. I just want to give you a framework so you can understand this when you read it on your own. So the first thing, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 to 3. Turn to the text. You really need to see this from the text. Because the translation doesn't do a good job of bringing this out. Their translator's job is not to bring out the underlying issues. Right? Their job is simply to translate. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 to 3. Or notice verse 2. We'll start at verse 2. You know that when you were pagans... Uh, no. You know... He, he didn't, Paul didn't use the word pagan. That's a pejorative. People don't like that. You know that before you became Christians... When you were practicing other religions, you know that before you became Christians, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray. You were led by your gods to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. No one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. What's happening here is this. Paul reminds them of their pre-Christian past. When they had an experience of the spirit world, and that experience of the spirit world took them away from the true God, into false gods. Now that they're Christians, they're having an experience of the spirit world. And they're assuming that these experiences of the spirit are self-authenticating, that they're self-validating, that if I have this experience, well, much like I assumed when I was a young Christian. I had these ecstatic experiences. I didn't create them as best as I knew. They must be coming from God. And I assumed that they were self-validating. And I shouldn't control them. I should let them express themselves because this is a gift from God. And they're assuming that same kind of thing. That sp experiences of the spirit, spirit experiences, ecstatic experiences, trance states that they're somehow self-authenticating. They're obviously from God. Therefore, we let them run their course. Paul said, no, you had these experiences before you became a Christian. You had these experiences as Christians. Now notice, he doesn't say, because you had this experience before you were a Christian, therefore it's invalid to have this experience as a Christian. He doesn't invalidate the experience just because it looks similar to what it looked like before. What he does do is say, look, you had these experiences before you became a Christian, and it didn't take you to God. It wasn't from God. So you can't assume that any experience you have now is somehow from God, taking you to God. As, he's not illegitimizing the experience. All he's doing is invalidating the interpretive correlation. If I have this experience, it's from God. 
It must be true. I follow it where it leads me. He's saying that's not valid. It wasn't valid when you were a Christian, before you became a Christian. It's not a valid assumption when you are a Christian. How do you, he says the first thing he has to do, the first criterion for validation is this. No one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus be cursed. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The experience may be valid or it may be invalid. One way we assess, we can't say, I've had this experience, therefore it's valid. We have to say, what's the content and the interpretation of that experience? Does that experience validate Jesus or does it invalidate Jesus? It's not possession, which is crucial, but confession. What's the consequence? What's the content of that experience? No one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. No one can say Jesus is the Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The first criterion is not possession, but confession, what we say from it. Secondly, in 4 to 11, verses 4 to 11, he deals with this issue of, you know how it is, in, as I described it, in non-Christian religions, to be a medium is a special calling. I mean, people might not want it, but it puts you at a special higher level of spirit, spiritism. You are the special conduit between that world and this world. Paul takes aim at that very strongly in 4 to 11. Even if this experience is valid, he's not invalidating the experience. He's saying, look, it doesn't make you special. Take a look at verses four, uh, 5 and 6, 4, 5, and 6. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Do you see the contrast that he keeps drawing? Different same, different same, different same. Look, he said, there is no one person who's a medium in Christian theology. That's pagan. We don't have special mediums in Christian theology. We're all, if you will, intermediaries between the spirit world and the human world. God empowers all of us. God indwells all of us. God blesses all of us with certain abilities. And these abilities mean that we are conduits of God's grace, conduits of God's spirit. All of us are conduits of God's spirit to others, other Christians. They're different manifestations, but it's the same spirit. There's no hierarchy. Different, same, different, same. Different, same. Different gifts, same spirit. Different service, same Lord. Different working, but same God. So he undermines that whole net sense of superiority that some people are special mediums. Paul doesn't disparage these manifestations. But what he does is he disparages the interpretation and the framework that they're understood within. The third point he makes he develops the second point a little bit more f- fully. He first talks to those people who feel inf- inferior. You know, I'm not, a, I don't have these trance experiences. I don't have this prophecy. I don't have these ecstatic languages. Therefore, I'm not a medium. Therefore, I'm kind of like really kind of useless. And he first he deals with them. And then he goes to the people who felt superior because they did have these experiences. And he and he deals with them, and they're thinking, well, now we're kind of like the Christian equivalent of a, of a pagan, of a Delphic prophet, or we're the Christian equivalent of a pagan uh, medium. Now we're special. And Paul deals with each in turn. But notice how he corrects them both. 
He says to one, you say, I'm a foot, I'm not a hand, so I'm no use. You say, I'm an ear, I'm not an eye, so I'm no use. And then he turns to the other camp and says, well, you say, I'm an eye, so I'm much more valuable than the hand. Or you say, I'm the head, so I'm much more valuable than the feet. And Paul says, just the opposite, really. We serve a gracious God. And what God does is he takes the inferior and he gives them a more prominent position so they'll feel better about themselves. You see how insulting he's being? And he says he takes the superior and he gives them a less significant gift because they don't need to feel better about themselves. Basically what Paul is saying is there is no superiority. There is no inferiority. There's only one body. And when within the human body, you need every single digit, you need every single toe, you need every single part of the body for the body to function well. There is neither superiority nor inferiority, only interdependence. And then he switches into chapter 13. Now remember in chapter 9, chapter 13, these are both kind of digressions we would call them, but they're central to the argument. Notice Paul's point. He says, if I speak in tongues, in not just tongues of men, if I speak in human languages, even if I speak in the tongues, if in the languages that the angels speak, you see how special that would be? Speaking languages of angels. But I don't have love. Then I'm worthless. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I can understand all spiritual mysteries, and I have all words of knowledge, I understand all theology, if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, then I'm nothing. If I give all my belongings to the poor, and if I give, if I give my body to asceticism and hardship, and if I don't have love, then it's worthless. You see, his point is that none of these spiritual experiences, trans-states, ecstasy, mediumship, uh, uh, devotion, uh, financial generosity, none of these things, fasting, none of these amount to anything unless they're coupled with kindness toward other people. So again, he's undermining the concrete, the, the foundational values that they bring to it. Finally, in 14, 1 to 25, he turns to the specific issue at hand. For whatever reason, oh, well, we know the reason, right? So th throughout history, in the Greco-Roman world, in the Chinese world today, speaking in, in languages that nobody understands is a sign of spirit possession. Very common in world religions or in the low, low religions, that speaking in other languages that people don't understand is a sign. It was true of Greco-Roman religion, true of the Delphic Oracle. It, it's true of all manner of low traditions. So they were preoccupied with tongues. So now Paul, having dealt with the foundational issues, Paul turns himself now to speaking in tongues. And he never criticizes speaking in tongues in private. He only criticizes speaking in tongues in public. And, and he doesn't say speaking in tongues in public is wrong. All he's saying is this. It's not a big deal. It doesn't make you special. In fact, it's a lesser use than speaking in prophecy in public. Because prophecy is messages from God that other people can understand. Tongues is communication with God that nobody can understand. And when you're in public, you want to be useful. 
And the incoherent or the indecipherable is not useful in public. So it's in public what's useful is being able to communicate clearly. And therefore, he says, prophecy is superior to tongues, not intrinsically, but only because it's more useful. And finally, in the end, 26 to 40, he writes this. Two or three prophets may speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said, assess it, make sure it's prophetic, make sure it's legitimately from God. If a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first prophet should shut up and sit down so that the second one can talk. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Here's the crucial point, which I did not understand as a young Christian. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. See, here's another control he puts on our experience of the spirit world. The spirit of the prophets, those who are inspired by the prophets, those who are in a way Christian equivalent of the mediums, those in whom this prophet, in whom the spirit is working and empowering them to speak, still that is subject to us. We don't have to speak. We don't have to dominate. We don't have to assert ourselves. All of this is still subject to us. So when my friends came to me and said, look, you're freaking people out. Calm this down a little bit. And I said back to them, well, this is the spirit working in me. How can I stifle it? I should encourage it. They didn't know the Bible well enough to say, here's what the Bible says. But this passage speaks directly to it. Paul says all of our behavior together, not just what we do of our own volition, but even when God is directly, immediately working through us, all of our behavior together should be useful to everybody else, should encourage them. All of our behavior together is under our own control. None of it is obligatory, even if it comes from God. Now, one final caveat to all of this. We typically start out with what was their situation and what did God say to them. And then we must always compare their situation with our situation and what would God be saying to us. Now, they were like I was when I first became a Christian and put way too much emphasis on spirit possession and mediumship and not enough on theology and training and civility and proper behavior. So in that situation, Paul said to them, back off a bit. Be more sensible about, about, about this. Understand it. You're, you're not in those other religions now. You're a Christian now, and that affects how you experience the spirit and how you carry it out. That's their occasion. But our occasion is much different than that, at least for most of us, I think. If we come from a conservative church tradition or if we come from a Chinese background, Chinese church background, many of us come overly hyper about these things, about the spirit world. And so we're really extraordinarily constricted about these things. We want, we're really cautious about these things. Now, we can read what Paul said to them and say, no, it's right not to be just swallowing everything that's been fed to us. It's right to critique. It's right to bring scripture to bear. It's right to evaluate. But maybe if Paul were writing to us from a conservative Christian background or a Chinese church background, maybe what he'd say to us is, 
maybe we don't have to be quite so hyper or anxious about these things as we tend to be. I can't leave you with a one track, one path fits everybody. But I would at least leave you with this. Scripture is, is very important, central to our lives. And it, Scripture critiques all else. At the same time, some experience, first-hand experience, a direct experience, unmediated experience of God and Spirit find place for themselves in Scripture. Uh, Paul never disallows all of this world or all of these manifestations. All he disallows is overemphasizing these to the exclusion of Christian values. For the rest of it, I think, it's hard for me to lay down one path for all of us. I'd say what we all need to do is feel our way forward through study of Scripture and interacting with God, blessing each other, encouraging each other, and going step by step. Let's pray together. Father, this is a place where your word doesn't say, 